going to continue reading God's Word from the letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Um, we said that Paul's writing to this church that's had all sorts of divisions within it. Um, he set the church up, and then he's writing to them a few years later on. And he's referring to himself and to a chap called Apollos who'd come after Paul and was preaching there. The Corinthians had began to say which one's better and sort of compete between them, but he's stressing the unity of what they're seeing. And he'd taken us to, in the first chapters, the cross and what that meant, this upside-down world of what the Lord Jesus had done. So, let's read from chapter 4. This, then, is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and of those entrusted with the mysteries that God has revealed. Now, it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I'm judged by you or any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Now, brothers and sisters, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you did not? Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. You've begun to reign, and that without us. How I really wish, how I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we might reign with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We've been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored and we are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. We are, when we are cursed, we blessed. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. When we have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you, my dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I've sent Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Some of you have become arrogant, as if I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord is willing. And then I will find out not only those arrogant people who are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? 
Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline, or shall I come with love and with a gentle spirit? Amen, and thanks be to God for His Word. I left last week's sermon there. Let's pray. Father, we ask that as we come to Your your Word, um, that You would speak to us from this ancient context and this ancient church to our church today and our souls today in the world that we live in. Your true and unchanging Word. Amen. Who is the most important person? Now, if you'd ask the Corinthians that in Paul's day, they would have an obvious answer. The most important person was the emperor, because the Roman society that the Roman colony of Corinth lived in was very much a hierarchical society. Everybody knew their place. The emperor was at the top, then it was the senators, then it was the equestrians, then it was the local elites, uh, and then it was the plebs, the common people, and then it was the freed people, that's the people that used to be slaves, but they become free, and at the bottom of the heap was the slaves. Society was very hierarchical, very structured. Now, we might say that uh, our modern societies are much the same, aren't they? There's people at the top of the heap and people at the bottom of the heap. The difference is that in our society, we have this notion that actually everybody matters. Whether that works out in practice is a different question, but we have this notion. Romans would have none of that. They were quite clear. Power and honor and glory and praise belong to the people at the top, not the people at the bottom. Paul talks about the people at the bottom as being the scum of the earth, and that's how the society was. And into this came the cross. The upside down, back to front, nonsensical nonsense of the gospel, which said this, that the most important person in all creation, the most morally excellent man who had ever lived, the most significant divine person who created all things, had died on a cross, humiliated, despised, mocked, and worthless. And he'd chosen to do that. And in chapters 1 to 3, Paul is reminding the Corinthians of that. Not just the story of the gospel that brings salvation, but of this whole change of mindset as we become people that focus on what Jesus did on the cross. The, all, the complete opposite of the world that we know. Now, why is he doing that? Well, partly because the church in Corinth is not behaving that way. In fact, it's behaving the opposite way. The leadership and the people in Corinth seem to be playing some sort of power games. What they've got concerned with is who's got spiritual wisdom in the congregation? Who's got the the, the knowledge? Who's got the spiritual gifts? Who can speak eloquently of the truth? And they are divided, and they are competing, and they are playing power games with it. In fact, they've divided around these two apostles, 
Paul who'd planted the church, Apollos who'd come later. Some of them are saying, I was saved by the real St. Paul. And others are saying, well, Apollos is so much more polished than Paul. I follow him. And so they are all divided. And this is the theme that comes right through Corinthians all the time. We seem to have a church that is all about status, that is all about boasting, is all about I'm better than them, look at me, and all the rest of it. And they are forgetting that the cross has stood all of that on its head. Here's a wee cartoon of two folks shouting and arguing about whether Paul's best or Apollos is best. Now, we can translate that into the modern age. Some folks saying that the organ is really the only instrument, and some folks saying it has to be guitars, uh, or, or some folks saying that we should kneel for the sacrament, and some folks saying you should never do that. You can pick anything you like that starts to say, I'm on the right side. God is obviously with me and my way of doing church. Paul identifies in the passage that we have just read a pride problem. Here's what he says in verse 6. Then you will not be puffed up into being a follower of one against the other. Pride. And this is a, a, an, a, an expression that will be used right through the letter. Being puffed up, being proud. Now, in, in our society, in most societies, pride is always seen as a problem, isn't it? Pride leads to big egos. Pride leads to people feeling that they're the main show, and that leads to division. Big egos are easily bruised, and we get competition, and we get strife. But actually, our society sees a, a, another problem with, with ego, and that is if, if, if too much self-esteem and, and too much thinking highly of yourself is a problem, actually, the opposite is true as well, that, that thinking of yourself as nothing is a problem as well. In fact, uh, I was reading something the other day that was suggesting that low self-esteem often leads to people feeling alienated, and sometimes that leads to behavior that doesn't fit in with society. In fact, if you go into prisons today, you will find very many people, part of the reason they're there is that somebody at some time made them feel that they didn't belong, that they were utterly worthless, and that sent them on a spiral that's landed up where they are. And so, sometimes our solution is to want to bring people down, and, and sometimes our solution is to want to bring people up, affirm them, tell them that they're worth something. But what if the cross gives us another whole way of thinking about this? You see, this metaphor of being puffed up, its illusion, allusion is to what happens when part of your body is swollen. Now, you know what it's like when you bite your tongue and it suddenly swells up, and it feels huge, and then you look in the mirror and you can't see anything. Or you've got on your, on your lip an ulcer, and, and it just feels like there's this massive thing in your mouth, and then, then you look and there's actually nothing there. Or you stub your toe, and you know what happens? That one small part of the body starts to become as if it was taking on everything, all the focus, all the mind is on that one bit of the body that's causing pain. Do you, you know what I mean? It's almost as if it was puffed up. You feel pain. Every little jolt becomes a huge deal. 
Now think about that if it's the eagle that is puffed up. So that every little jolt becomes a massive pain. You ever have feelings of being ignored? Or feelings of being snubbed? Or feelings of being slighted or put down or made to feel stupid or underappreciated or not included or not respected? And suddenly it cuts to the heart, isn't it? Because it's the little thing, but it's blown up, it's puffed up till it takes over. See, here's the problem with the ego. What the ego does when it's hurt is it focuses everything on itself. Everything on itself until it takes over. And the problem with self-image, which we all struggle with, is it's insanely competitive. It's always about someone else. Notice what Paul says here, puffed up in being a follower of one of us against the other. Because you know what the ego does all the time is it compares. It compares. How do I feel? Do I feel better or worse than someone else? Now, I've got, I'm going to prove this with a memory verse. Like memory verses? I'm going to test you on this one. And I guarantee that 99% of you will know this memory verse already. And some of you are saying, I, I can't remember memory verses. You can remember this one. I'm only going to say the first two words of this memory verse, and you're going to be able to recite the rest of it. Guaranteed. Here it goes. Mirror, mirror. There you are. You know your memory verse. I didn't say it was from the Bible, did I? And the answer... Who is the fairest of them all? Snow White. You're absolutely right. There's your memory verse. You see, this is amazing though. Now, I was thinking about this a little bit, this, this memory verse. Who is the greatest? Who is the fairest of them all? The queen has this gorgeous, beautiful stepdaughter called Snow White. And so when she gets the answer that Snow White is the most beautiful stepdaughter imaginable, she says, oh, that is absolutely lovely. I feel so pleased for Snow White. <laughs> That's, that wouldn't make a great story, would it? No, of course she doesn't. She absolutely rages about Snow White being the most beautiful of them all. Eagle. Inflated. Eagle. Competitive. And here's the thing. What does the queen do? She hatches an evil, dastardly plot to kill Snow White. Why does she do that? Because if Snow White's not there, she will be the most beautiful person of them all. You know what that means? That means this evil queen is the second most beautiful person in all the realm. No doubts. And that's amazing because can you imagine if someone came to you and said, you are the second most beautiful person in Scotland? Would you feel down about that? I don't think you would. I think most of us would be saying, where's the modeling contract? Right? They're going to be lining up for me. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm God's gift to everybody here. But is the queen happy? No. Because eagle always competes. Always. And if you don't think your ego competes, then you're not really paying attention. 
The problem is that whatever it is that we have that gives us some sort of self-worth, there is always someone out there who is better at it. There's always a Snow White. There's always a better preacher. There's always a better baker. There's always a more perfect parent. There's always a more successful family. There's always someone that's more intelligent, someone that's got it together more, someone that's better at bowling. There's always someone with more friends. Sometimes we have people around us who are so successful, they just make us feel small. And what happens? We start to lose delight in what we have. I've used a quote before from, I think it's Gore Vidal who said, every time a friend succeeds, a little bit of me dies. And it's so true. We are so, so competitive. This week, um, Colin and I were talking about the church's social media uh, presence and, and what we could do to, to, to get our word out on Facebook and Twitter and other things like that. And as we were talking, we were, we were reflecting that Motherwell South does it really, really well. Now, it was in our hearts to think, well, that's fantastic for Motherwell South. It's really good that they're able to do that. No, it was, we don't want to be, we want to be better than them. We want to have, you know, that's the instinct, isn't it? Rather than rejoice in what someone else is doing, we immediately feel, why can't I? Why can't I? Who is the fairest of them all? And yes, competition like that can motivate, but it also destroys unity. It brings in competition, and it robs us twice of enjoyment because we are not able to enjoy what a friend has, and we're not able to enjoy what we can do either. You know, in our society, the most successful people in the society's eyes today are celebrities, aren't they? They're the ones that have got the massive fan clubs who spend their whole time telling them how wonderful they are. If anyone had their ego buttered up, it would be a celebrity. They have got the biggest financial rewards on the planet, get paid millions every time they star in a movie or, or, or produce a book. They are indulged, they are pampered, they are admired, their political opinions are listened to like nobody else's, and yet, and yet, does it make them happy? No, mostly our celebrities are the most vain, insecure, egotistical, defensive, touchy people on the planet, aren't they? Lifted up, but the ego is so flattered and buttered up that it's inflated to a point that they're even worse than those of us who have low self-esteem and are feeling touchy about things. I was reading something that was pointing out the simple truth that um, millions and millions are spent on plastic surgery and cosmetic surgery. But it's not ugly people that spend it. It's people that are already beautiful that spend all of that. C.S. Lewis put it this way, pride gets no pleasure of having something, only of having more of it than the next man. It is not the comparison. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition is gone, pride is gone. And if you've got a high ego, that's a problem. And if you've got low self-esteem, it's the same problem, feeling that other people are doing better than you. What's the solution? Well, in the verses that we read, Paul offers several solutions, but he starts off this way. 
He looks at himself and he looks at Apollos, these two people that the Corinthians are putting on pedestals. He's already said that they work together, that they're actually doing the same thing. But he reiterates here, you need to regard us as servants of Christ. Now, there's two things he's saying here. One is, is actually quite humbling. He says, I'm just a servant. I'm not a master. I'm not important. I'm just a servant. I've got a job to do. I'm just a butler. I don't own this house. I'm here to serve. And that's self-effacing in some ways. It's, it's saying it's not about me and my ego. I'm just a servant. I'm at the bottom of the heap. But the second thing he's saying is this. He's pointing out that the servant is only answerable to the master. The servant might come and, and people might see this is just a, a, a servant, this is just a slave. But ultimately, the only person they need to be concerned about is what the master thinks. In, in the Roman world, slaves were at the bottom of the heap, but if you were the slave of someone important, then that began to change things. In fact, the emperor's slaves were often the people who were running government departments. They were really important, but the only opinion poll they cared about was what the emperor thought. Didn't matter whether they were popular, whether people liked them or not, they only had to worry about what the emperor thought. And that is what Paul is saying here. In the end, slave, servant, it's only one person that matters, and that's the master. I'm not important myself, so it doesn't matter if you put me down, but I'm focused on Jesus' opinion of me. And then he goes on to say this, I care very little if I'm judged by you or any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. I am not looking for praise. I am not looking for affirmation. I'm not going to get touchy if you put me down. I'm not going to get big-headed if you lift me up. I don't care. Now, in many ways, our society today would say, well, that's great, isn't it? Doesn't matter what people think about you. Doesn't matter what people think about you. All that matters is that you are content with who you are in yourself. That's all that matters. But there's a problem with that as well, because actually, first of all, I, I don't believe people when they say that. See, when people say, I, 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 I don't care what people think about me, I, I'm left thinking, that's just what you want people to think about you. That's an image itself. That's an ego itself. But here's the other big problem with it. What if you've got, if you say it only matters what I think about myself, what if you have an overinflated opinion of yourself? What if you're a narcissist who looks in the mirror and thinks you're wonderful, goes around telling you you're the greatest? I mean, we see some of them standing for election these days, don't we? But what if you're a narcissist? falling in love with your own affliction. And on the other side of it, what if you're the opposite of that? What if you've got a very low opinion of yourself? I don't care what anyone thinks, it's only what I think about myself. But what if you think you're nothing? What if you have a, a low opinion of yourself? There's the trap. Because if I don't live up to other people's expectations for me, I'm going to feel rubbish. But if I don't live up to my own expectations, I'm going to be utterly 
crushed unless I've got such low expectations and then I'm just going to feel that I'm rubbish because I'm a person with low standards. Can't win. That's the problem with the ego, however you play it. But Paul says, I do not even judge myself. See, what Paul is saying here is ultimately, it's not just that other people's opinions won't define me. It's not even about me at all and what I think. C.S. Lewis put this point very well when he said this, humility is not thinking less of yourself, going around saying I'm useless and I'm no good at anything. That's not humility. That's just more of the ego. It's thinking of yourself less. You've got to think about that one. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. You're focused on somebody else. And that's love, isn't it? Paul says, in the end, he says this, it's the Lord who judges me. Now, that could be awful frightening as well, because we might then say, well, hold on a minute, the Lord judges me. If, if other people judge me hardly, and I, I, and I feel rotten about that, and if I judge myself, and I feel rotten about that, here comes God saying, He's going to judge you. I, I'm, I'm definitely done for. But again, we have to interpret this through the cross. The theme here, as Paul talks about judging, is, is like a Roman court where a verdict is given. But he's already spelt out to us and reminded us of a Roman court which gave a verdict. A Roman court which gave a verdict against the most innocent man in the universe and said guilty. A Roman court that took the most important man in the whole of creation and said, nothing, you are nothing. A Roman court that took the most worthy man that had ever lived and said, you are worthless. And if we are judged by the Lord Jesus Christ, then we are judged in light of the cross. For He died for me, that He might declare me innocent. For He died for me, because God valued me and loved me and called me and made me His. He died for me because He made me worthy of all that God has promised and given me. And that is who I am. It is in the cross that we find our identity. And the amazing thing is that makes us free. Free from worrying about what other people think of me, but also not touchy about it so that when people make criticisms that I can take on board and, and be encouraged by or reflected by or changed by, I can do that. I can think about how I, how I can be changed by the gospel without becoming an introvert that's completely concerned about my own self-esteem. The change and release that that gives to know that we are loved by the one who sees everything. Paul puts it in this humble way because the other danger is for Christians. I remember Donald Trump saying, sorry, I always quote Donald Trump, but, you know, such an obvious straw man. 
He, he said in his last election campaign, I'm proud to be a Christian. I'm proud to be a Christian. And I thought, you, don't, you just don't get the cross, do you? How can you be proud to be a Christian? To be a Christian is to be demeaned. To be a Christian is to come to the foot of the cross and say, I cannot do it. I cannot save myself. I cannot earn my forgiveness. I cannot be it. I need Jesus Christ to give me the gift of salvation, the gift of His love. And Paul puts it this way. What do you have that you did not receive? And if it's a gift that you've been given freely by grace, not because you deserved it, why are you boasting and bragging as if you'd done it, if you'd got this knowledge of yourself or this spiritual gift of yourself or whatever it is? Give glory to God. This is the freedom that allows us to forget ourselves and focus on Christ. And if you read this chapter again, you'll see an image at the end, and the image of itself at the end is of the ultimate Roman power play. When a Roman general won a battle, conquered a new province, they would come back to Rome and the Senate would grant them a triumph. And what the general got to do then was march through the city itself of Rome, at the head of a massive procession, they would put an, or, an olive, um, an, a laurel crown on his head, and they would all shout about how important he was with his legions marching behind him. And behind all those legions of conquest would come all the booty and the loot that they had sacked from the places they were, and behind all of that would come the slaves that they had taken, the people that had been captured and when the procession was finished, those people would be sold off into slavery or they'd be put in the arena where they'd be killed. And Paul, with biting irony and sarcasm, says to the Corinthians, <laughs> you think you're the kings. You think you're the rich. You think you're the powerful. You think you're at the head of this honor procession that the world has created. And he said, we apostles, we know that to be a Christian is to be at the back of it. To be despised and persecuted and rejected and misunderstood. And as we stand at the back of it, we stand where Jesus stood in the honor and dignity of the world through the upside-down values of the cross. And when we realize that that is where power is to be found, it turns everything on its head for our all is in Jesus. He is our security and our future, and we don't seek honor or glory or ego in any shape or form. We have the freedom to forget ourselves and live for Him. Amen.